and we back. Welcome to Tesserai, where we explore the integrated Christian walk in light of the ways it has been dismantled. Unless you've been hiding under a rock the past couple of years, you've probably heard about the Enneagram. If not, by the way, well, you're in for a treat. The Enneagram has been blogged about, tweeted about, and goodness, there's entire podcasts devoted to unpacking the mysteries of your number. So what's the deal with the Enneagram? On this episode, we're going to dip our toes in the water and try to understand a little bit about what it is, why it might be useful, and most importantly, what Steve's number is. <laughs> All right. So today, to help us talk about it, uh, we wanted an expert to come in, somebody who could really break down uh, the understanding of it so that we do it justice. Uh, none of them were available, so we decided to go with <laughs> Preston Tischer. Preston is uh, a recently graduated graduate student at Wheaton College. Um, we've worked together in residence life for quite a few years, and he'll tell you a little bit about what the next journey he has is, but I'm super excited to, to uh, have some time together just to share a little bit about his own expertise with what the Enneagram is, how it has been used in a, and how it can be used in a ministry context. Um, and uh, yeah, just looking forward to doing it. So thanks for joining us, bro, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Bob. Uh, yeah, I'm probably the only one who would call myself an Enneagram expert um, just, just kidding. I don't, I don't say that. I dabble in the Enneagram. I'm kind of known as an Enneagram person a little bit in my circles, but don't have any like formal training. Just um, I'm, I'm a big fan. Listen to some podcasts, read some books on it. Um, so I'm, I'm here to talk about it. I'm really excited. Um, yeah, I just graduated from Wheaton College two times in the past few years with undergrad and grad school, and I'm off to do residence life at Messiah University in the fall. Um, but love residence life as a context for relational ministry. Love using things like the Enneagram to mentor students, to um, have a better idea of how to work with people in teams. Um, so I'm excited to talk about how I've used it a little bit um, and some of its usefulness in ministry too. All right, so let's get into it then. The, when you hear the word Enneagram, I don't know, I, I either think of witchcraft or medical procedure. So what in the world is the Enneagram? Have you been I don't even know. It just sounds like something you might do. <laughs> it, it does. And when it's not being used for witchcraft, um, <laughs> we can't say that. <laughs> I grew up reading Harry Potter, so I'm comfortable with it. <laughs> Our listenership just went... <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, it's it's known as like a personality test, um, and it can be used that way, but it can go much deeper too. Um, used in like psycho spiritual ways to 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 dive into not only what you're like psychologically, but like some of the things that you wrestle with, um, some of the things that are going on spiritually with you as well. So it has been described as uh, nine different pilgrimages of the soul um, in kind of a meta understanding of the Enneagram. It's like what you do to help compensate for unmet needs in your life, especially that's sprouted from like an unmet need or a challenge in childhood. Um, so it's got nine types of personality, um, personality kind of archetypes, stereotypes. And it, if you saw it, you would recognize the circle with there's a triangle and like other shapes in there. Um, and that's like the shape of the Enneagram, which just means like in a nine-sided or nine-pointed shape. Um, so when we're talking about what kind of type you are, um, 
it's it's not necessarily that you are the type, but your type is kind of the strategy you use to make your way in the world. Something that you've learned to do to help again compensate for kind of an unmet need. So the idea is a lot of teachers will say that the healthier you are, the more integrated you are as a person, the less you look like any one type because um, you're, you're not needing those coping strategies as much anymore hmm, um, interesting. when you're more of a healthy person. So that's kind of how I, I understand it. Um, so yeah. if we have these, these unmet needs that you're saying, like, does that mean that uh, what you perceive, like, is there a difference between what you perceived your childhood to have been? Like, you know, I, I, I kind of, this is the way that I grew up. This is the lens that I saw it through. Or is there a difference for, well, you, it, it, is that necessarily accurate? I guess is what I'm getting at. Um, how you think you grew up or the perceived unmet needs that you had. How do you reconcile those with maybe somebody else's perspective or uh, of how you grew up? Or mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty much how I understand it is, I think it comes back to, a confirmation bias so that no matter what your childhood was like, like I had a great childhood, great family, um, really supportive, but still as a nine experiencing the need for like inward and outward peace. And um, at times feeling like I was overlooked or that my presence didn't matter. That was communicated to me, even though I had a great family, um, great growing up time. Um, so it's more your experience of how you grew up and less like how it actually was. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the kind of confirmation bias. Um, and it's not necessarily that you could like raise a child to be like a two. Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot of Enneagram teachers would agree. It's more of a nature than nurture kind of situation with your Enneagram type. I see. Okay. That's how Does that answer what? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I just I wanted to unpack a little bit of what you meant by unmet needs, and mm -hmm. we just see those differently. I see that like when growing up with my siblings, like uh, I think two of us are actually the same number, um, you know, but uh, we still have different lenses and different experiences, ways that we experienced our same like household growing up, you know. So just was kind of curious about what that meant. Um, now I I think this is this has really been interesting for me, uh, kind of learning a little bit, being skeptical at the beginning, which we'll kind of get to some of that skepticism. I think you're going to share with us a little bit about that. That'll be helpful. But kind of talking about this in a ministry context, I wanted to mention this in the in the intro. But I think a big reason uh, why I appreciate you, Preston, has just been your heart for ministry since I met you as a senior in college and um, having worked together for a few years. Despite the fact that you refused to do this show unless we got you a trailer. Um, because you're under the impression that all of the other guests got trailers. Mm -hmm. None of they did. I'm convinced. Yeah. So there's no trailer. But that even if we had a trailer, it would be ours. We wouldn't give it to you. We, <laughs> no. But that aside, I digress. <laughs> anyway, I want to know why is this your number showing, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> I want to know why this is helpful in a ministry context. Um, why? Why do you think is like somebody who? Um, is very passionate about ministry and God's people and serving them in unique ways. Uh, why, why has the Enneagram been helpful for you? In what ways can others find it helpful, uh, whether they're familiar with it or not? Yeah, well, I think um, something unique about the Enneagram is like among personality kind of typologies that you'll see is it, it recognizes growth in a person 
and recognizes that like where you are isn't necessarily where like you should be um, and kind of names again some of those like unmet needs or areas that um, like aren't perfect about you. So I heard an Enneagram teacher once describe the Enneagram like if the gospel is the good news, then the Enneagram is like a way of describing the bad news of like why you need the gospel because mm. the Enneagram is a tool that can help describe like how broken we are, how much we need the Lord, how much those like unmet needs and our personality is basically how we try to get those needs met for ourselves. Um, how instead like letting that go and letting God fulfill our innermost needs. So with the Enneagram helping to describe um, like how those unmet needs or how our personality tries to compensate for things, um, that can go pretty deep. And so when you use the Enneagram, like I've used in like one-on-one mentorship kind of contexts, um, getting down to like your innermost motivations for why you do what you do. Um, when you get to that deep place, which I've had the privilege of like going to with uh, different mentees of mine, that's when we can say like, this is a really deep, like lifelong struggle you've had. And this is how the Lord meets you there. Um, so it's kind of like a shortcut to getting to like depth that you can certainly get to without a tool like the Enneagram or with other tools. Um, but it's a way of like getting deep and seeing how the Lord meets you in that deep place. Um, so that you can then like offer that up in prayer or ask for accountability in that place. Um, on a more practical note too, for people like us who sometimes wear like mentorship or pseudo counseling hats, um, but who aren't necessarily trained in psychology. Um, the Enneagram is a relatively easy and accessible tool to grasp and remember for someone like me who um, I'm a visual learner. So to have the like Enneagram symbol and all the patterns that are within the Enneagram kind of visualized in my mind, really easy to remember um, and can be like really easy to like show people as well. Um, and sometimes I talk through the Enneagram with people. Sometimes it's just kind of in my head as I'm talking with someone through whatever. Um, but yeah, overall recognizing that the Enneagram or Enneagram teachings in themselves, um, they can point out things and help you name things, but they don't change you. Um, a lot of times teachers will talk about like doing the work, like doing the Enneagram work, um, which is kind of like self-helpy, but in a Christian understanding, I think we'd agree like the Lord forms us, the spirit is enlivening that kind of transformation into Christ likeness for us. Um, and it's not about like special knowledge that the Enneagram has, yeah. um, but the Enneagram can help us get to a place where we can offer up uh, kind of the depths of our heart to the Lord too. Yeah. Got it. Sort of a clarifying question. Yeah. Uh, you framed it as like our unmet needs, um, which almost sounds like a negative framing. It shows us the areas where we're deficient or where we maybe need to compensate for, et cetera. Um, uh, is it, are, are there positive dynamics in terms of uh, like leveraging your personality or number? Yes. Great question. So I framed it more as like nine different ways we compensate for unmet needs. It can also be described as kind of like nine different ways we overcome some of the brokenness 
in our lives and image God in non-unique ways as well. There are, in like books or podcasts you listen to, um, people describe the special virtues that um, each type is in relationship with in a unique way, um, just as each type kind of struggles with a particular sin or passion, um, each type then has a corresponding strength that they bring to, to the world that they've kind of grown in to compensate for their own unmet needs um, that they can offer to communities and relationships. For instance, um, nines wanting to seek harmony, um, wanting to uh, have inward and outward peace, um, then bringing that to relationships that are in conflict to get past some of the misunderstanding and get to a place where we can have peace with each other. Um, so kind of corresponding strengths there. Often, I find it easier to describe types or the Enneagram in terms of negative um, because that, um, again, is kind of how they're born, but also it can be easier to describe a certain type in terms of unhealth because that's like more drastic. And like I said, the healthier someone is or the more positive something is, the less they look like a certain number. Sure. Um, I think that it's it's uh, kind of ironic given that we just we started with ministry and then I'm, I want to go to the personal. But I think that it helps you do understand people. Uh, you grow in your understanding of others as you grow in your understanding of yourself, you know, and their impact on you or your perceptions of them. So I want you to talk a little bit about it personally, because I think for me, that's that's where it started. Like, so now I see it. I, I like the language of using it as a tool, you know, that, that feels like you you don't see it as nothing, um, but you also don't count it as everything. And like, I won't be, um, I won't be able to have good relationships or understand myself if I don't have it. Um, uh, but I think for me, when I first, I was in grad school and I first uh, took the test. And I think that in reading the types and then taking the test, I was like, I do not want to be a three. I, that was like, <laughs> I found out later, apparently that's, that's not uncommon, to like an uncommon feeling to have towards your type. But I was like, this, this three or this achiever, it, they seem so shallow, like they're externally motivated or they need um, others to, to kind of pat them on the back, it seemed. Um, and, and, I, and I didn't like that. So I had another one of my coworkers <laughs> in grad school was like, um, I'm, I already know Steve's type. He's a three. And I'm like, first of all, you don't know me. <laughs> and then I took it. And I was like, dang it. <laughs> but um, I think uh, it has helped me a lot personally because it does inform a lot of how I looked at like my own upbringing. So kind of coming up as a pastor's kid, uh, there was internalized and external pressures to being, to being a pastor's kid. There was a, as the, um, as one of three and being the youngest, I had people always kind of saying like, you're going to be, a, you're going to be a pastor like your dad. And I wanted to be just like my dad. So that was like kind of chill, but as more people kind of projected expectations upon me, um, or maybe even I projected their expectations at times, I internalized that and took it as like, you have to be better or you have to do this well, or you, um, uh, kind of have to live up to this understanding of what it means to like be a Cartwright or, or, or whatever. So. I think I did have like that pressure to achieve, not necessarily because I wanted to always do something, but because I perceived that um, I had to, or I was supposed to do this thing. You know, um, one way that I can remember it was like being a being a kid in church, and we're like running around doing something we're not supposed to do. Me, a couple of my friends, and one of the women in our church like stopped us 
like the three or four of us was like, hey, um, like, you know, stop this from running around in the sanctuary. And then she points at me specifically and says, you, you know better. Like, as if to say, like, all of y'all stop doing what you're doing. But you, this kid who's like, you know, basically the same age as everybody else, but you're a Cartwright, you're the pastor's son, you ought to know better than what you're doing. So I remember just like that feeling just kind of staying with me, but it wasn't like some kind of martyred feeling like you, this horrible thing. It was just kind of like, this is part of what you got to do, you know? And so when I got to college and wanted to get great grades, it, part of it was because you're supposed to, that's what you're supposed to do. So that feeling of like needing to achieve and do those things, uh, definitely, I feel like informs why I like probably maybe ended up being a three or whatever, you know? Um, so understanding that and understanding like even how ego plays into that, I think has been really important for my development and growth because when you're working in residence life, <clears throat> you should realize really fast that it's not about you. You are as an RA when you're in college, um, we preach this to our RAs. Um, you've heard me say before, Preston, and when you're a GRA and eventually you're going to be a residence director this fall too, Preston, like when you do those things, you realize that this is about the people that I get to serve, the people that I get to support. So having like my own pride uh, diminished is, is a, a daily thing. Um, but something that I just, I like, I see as, as a kind of becoming, helping me become more healthy um, in how I like want to help others be set up well for success, how I don't think about my own status or own success as like so pivotal in what I achieve, still wanting to do things or achieve things, but just feeling like I have a better balance of it now. Um, so that's been big for me personally before it even got to like just the external, how I was going to use it to serve others. It was sort of breaking down, I think, and um, sanctifying, honestly, and just kind of learning that aspect. So that's been it for me. And so just was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what it was like for you personally. And then if that's connected to more ministry stuff, you can. But you mentioned that you're a nine. What has that meant for you? Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. So before I encountered the Enneagram, I, through a philosophy class at Wheaton, I recognized that I wrestled with sloth, which is like such a, something such a silly thing to wrestle with, but is really real in terms of not wanting to engage in the things that like loving relationships demand of me mm. um, and not wanting to put energy forth there. So I kind of knew that that was a struggle. And so when I encountered the Enneagram, it was pretty soon that I realized well, I've got to be nine because sloth is like the, the vice of nines. Um, but also kind of intertwining that with eight, nine, and one, all wrestling with anger in a unique way because they're in the body or gut triad. So if you've ever seen the original Avengers movie, when Bruce Banner is about to change into the Hulk and they're like, what? But you need to get angry first. And he's like, that's my secret. I'm always angry. That's proof that Bruce Banner is a nine and the Hulk is his eight wing. <laughs> Welcome to my TED talk. Um, but so anyway, nines um, kind of always dealing with this anger that comes from um, like repressing our own preferences for the sake of harmony with other people and pushing that down until it like just bursts at some point. And being able to um, recognize that after kind of reading through the Enneagram literature a little bit, recognizing times in my life when, yeah, like I really like overreacted to that situation mm -hmm. or like I got really mad at this point and I like 
I have no idea what it was. Um, but recognizing some of those patterns of like repressing some of my, my own opinions and preferences and how that kind of comes out later on. And that's really not fair to anyone else or to me. Um, cause then, um, that like gets in the way of my relationships with people. If I'm not kind of stating my preferences, stating my opinion, um, then they're not getting the real me. And also, um, for, for myself, I'm, I'm not living into the idea that I matter if I'm not like sharing myself with people, you know? So that's, that can be like a cyclical thing for nines and especially my experience. Yeah. And, and I think with, in general, the, the Enneagram, getting to know it and kind of my, my own Enneagram education, helping me to recognize and validate other ways that people can be human, can go about doing life um, and recognizing strengths that people have that are different from mine. It can be easy to go through life and be like, someone thinks differently from me or they do things differently. Um, they like must be wrong or it's not like a valid way of going about life. But the more I've learned through the Enneagram about how other people can work and you can, you know, get to this point with, with other tools or just naturally or with the Lord's help. Um, I think it's an invitation to extend grace to other people when they're living differently or thinking differently from me. Yeah. Especially you, Steve, uh, the Lord has been gracious for me to give grace to you when, when uh, just made some bonehead decisions. Um, Ooh. Wow. Yeah. And uh, wow. Now's a good. Now's as good a time as any to announce that I'm the. I'm replacing Steve as the co-host of Tesserai. Um, we're, we're not asking him back. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Bob wait, and I are happy to announce. Hold on. Bob, you know I didn't know about it. I was still stuck on the trailer, but I understand now. <laughs> Sorry. Well, this has been fun, everyone. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> well, that, that's helpful. I, I I found it to be helpful as well in in just giving me a better grasp of, of who I am. And it's been interesting to even have language to navigate like my relationship with my wife, for example, who's also a three. Um, and uh, just giving us some, I think you called them shortcuts, like ways for us to be able to kind of latch onto something and be like, well, that's because, you know, you're acting like this, you're, you're acting out of your oneness or your threeness or whatever. Now, when, when she was actually, my wife, uh, when it got into this before I did, and uh, she started talking about it and I was pretty skeptical because I've always fancied myself sort of like my own, you know, my, my, my own man. I'm not really, you can't box me. Uh, Steve, you said that you didn't want to be a three. I just didn't want to be typed. Um, and so there, there is something to that, right? Like, uh, why would you reduce my personality to a number? <laughs> like, you know, there, there's a lot of resistance in my heart. So what do we do with, with that? You know, especially if somebody's listening and, and they're like, yeah, that sounds stupid. Why would I want to be flagged as just a number and my personalities, you know, I'm, I'm a unique snowflake and, you know, you, you can't do that to me. So how do you respond to that? Yeah. And if it's helpful, you can picture this as like a live show. Maybe you're getting a call in from an anchor caller who's tired of this Enneagram nonsense. And they're all like, all right, this is Gary Preston. That's all Enneagram nonsense. What are you talking about? What if I don't want to be in a box? I'll hang up and listen. And this will be a good practice for you now that you're taking over the show. So. 
Yeah, a lot of live callers. We get a lot of calls. Yeah. Uh, thank, you, thank you so much, Gary. Um, thanks for calling in. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> to quote Ian Morgan Cron, who is uh, an Enneagram teacher that, that I follow a little bit, he says, the Enneagram doesn't put you in a box. It shows you the box you're already in and how to get out of it, end quote. Um, that, I think, is a, a helpful way to see it because um, kind of like we've been saying, it helps you recognize kind of patterns that you've been living in that you want to to like offer up to the Lord for sanctification there. But yeah, I think people can use it really irresponsibly in that way that the way they use it can box people in. Mm-hmm. And that's a legitimate critique of how people use it. I don't think it's a legitimate critique of the Enneagram itself. Um, often people's problems with it are how people use it. Um, but if, if you see the way that people use it and you conclude that, oh, it's not helpful for me or the Enneagram in itself is manipulative or boxes people in, um, that I feel like that's a little intellectually irresponsible if I, I may use some big words. Mm, same. Um, in that if you're going to have an opinion about something, but you haven't looked into it for yourself or you're basing it off of how people use it, it feels like a little, little lazy to me. Mm. Um, and with something that with like the Enneagram, I don't care if someone uses it or likes it or finds it like helpful for them. Um, it's not the gospel. No one needs it. And like we've been saying, like other tools or just in other ways you can get to some of the same conclusions, but um, to, to hate on it or to see it as harmful without like looking into it. um, I don't think it does justice to it. And it's probably based on more so how people use it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. How about origins? That, that, That seems like that's helpful. And I like your point about being, intellectually responsible and running away from intellectual laziness. I think that is, that, that is a conversation that transcends the Enneagram. Um, it really is because uh, I think we, I don't know if, it's just, if this is like legit the era that we're in or not, if we're like, this is the age of disinformation or whatever. But I think that there is a tendency to, and when things get complex, when things become nuanced and, and things don't seem to be forming into our, uh, our assumed ways of right, it's much easier to um, dismiss it as illegitimate, whether spiritually illegitimate, logically, uh, emotionally illegitimate, um, and just kind of push that responsibility off, you know, as opposed to putting in some of the work and putting in some of the work can, can mean a whole, a whole bunch of different things. It can mean, it can mean listening to podcasts. It can mean reading. Um, it can mean considering different points of view that you haven't heard before or considered, even if that means like politically sometimes, you know? Um, so I love that point overall. Uh, but I think maybe I'd like for you to tell us just a little bit about our understanding of the Enneagram. Where does it come from now? What are a little bit of the origins? And you can go like as deep as you want, but are, are any of those, or is anything in its origins, in your opinion, like problematic for Christians? And that's why some, I don't, I don't necessarily know a ton, but I think there are some who are maybe a little bit more hesitant to get involved or a little more skeptical of it. Why is that? For sure. So yeah, let me briefly go over some origins as I understand them. If you were going to research for yourself where the Enneagram came from, you'd probably find a lot, a lot of kind of conjecture about like where it started. But 
at least three names would come up. Um, first one is George Gurdjieff. In the early 1900s, he and some of his friends um, decided, we're going to travel through Europe, Asia, throughout the world, and look for esoteric knowledge and ancient wisdom to, to see like what we can learn and to like get in touch with some of like the ancient wisdom traditions. They were just in search to become like really wise people. So he and his buddies kind of spread out and came together every once in a while to talk about what they had learned. So this is kind of where um, we're not really sure like where he went or what his friends like found in their travels. Um, And this is where some conjecture can come up as far as like, oh, they were talking to different religions, different religious backgrounds. Um, We're really not sure what's going on here. Um, But um, some of the things that they came up with, we could recognize from, uh, well, we'd be able to recognize the Enneagram as like a prototype right now. So it's not yet a personality system, but he and his buddies kind of came up with a model of natural processes that would kind of go from like, I think is like around the Enneagram starting with like one or two, I think. And they talk about like how like civilizations function or how a tree grows. You would like be able to trace it through some of these like basic ideas in the Enneagram types as we know them today. So with that, um, some of the basic things that they come up with were um, some of the symbolism in the shape of the Enneagram that they got from, like, it's tied back to Pythagoras and all his triangle stuff. And uh, Richard Rohr, at the beginning of his book, Enneagramming Christian Perspective, goes on about, like, the symbolism in the shapes. And I think the number um, 153 was the number of fish that were caught by the disciples at like the end of Matthew and just a lot of like mystic symbolism stuff right. that's going on there. Right. Right. So obviously true. Yeah. Yeah. It's right there in the Bible. <laughs> and uh, so we'd, we recognize that some of that's where some like symbolism mysticism comes in, but also some of like ancient thought that he had collected, we would recognize in like uh, Homer's the Odyssey um, a lot of Enneagram teachers say like all the different places that Odysseus traveled on his way home to Ithaca represent or like are paralleled in the Enneagram and in like the nine different places he stops or like encounters represent the different like passions um, that are represented in the Enneagram types. That's just a fun fact. But basically like there's there are these like themes in like ancient wisdom, ancient world that he kind of picked up on. Is it is it almost looking to establish like natural laws, like to almost a scientific approach? Like these are observable patterns. I mean, you talked about how he used it to describe um, natural processes. So was it almost like a, <laughs> a, a scientific mysticism or something like that? Here's where I'm I'm not really sure, um, but I do know they. Like he and his buddies would be like, you don't understand something unless you can talk through it through like the Enneagram at that point. Um, it's kind of like a way of understanding things or like a format to like understand things. So yeah, not yet a personality typing system. But the second name um, we, we come to, 
Oscar Ichazo, a Bolivian guy who's also in search of wisdom. Around 1950, he's collecting knowledge and teachings from Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff and his buddies were like, we're not going to write anything down, but like pass it on orally. So um, he comes to understand Enneagram as Gurdjieff was teaching it. And he starts to add layers of um, more religious thought from at least Christianity and Judaism at the time. Um, So adding things like the divine attributes of like love and peace and whatnot to the different types of the Enneagram. Or there's this idea of the seven deadly sins plus two, which are fear and deceit. Um, as the deadly sins were like being organized, at some point they like cut those out, I think. I don't know a ton about that. But basically adding these ideas of divine attributes and like sins to the Enneagram, making it a little bit more like grounded in religion and less just like mystical spiritual. Um, he also... I think uh, made closer ties between the symbol of the Enneagram itself and some of these thoughts that were circulating about the Enneagram um, as a system. Then our boy Claudio Naranjo, um, he was a psychologist living in California in the 1970s. And he um, was part of like a group that learned from Oscar Richazo, again, kind of like in a small group kind of setting, not writing things down yet. Then Naranjo brought things back to California in the 1970s. And since he was a psychologist, added psychological layers um, to the Enneagram that we see in some of the patterns that arise in the triads, in the stances. Um, And that's really what made the Enneagram into what we know it to be today that has the psychological layer. Um, So really, as we know it today, um, the Enneagram is only like, what, 50 years old-ish. Um, and from him and his Naranjo's uh, like groups and students, that's when it started to be written down. So does anybody use it as a like a universalizing framework like the that first guy did? Or is it, is it mostly employed kind of for its like psychological insights? I think nowadays in like how, how we know it, it's used more like psychologically, spiritually. Um, teachers will distinguish this Enneagram as we know it as the Enneagram of personality okay. and call like past versions or other versions as the Enneagram of like process or other things. Okay. Cool. Um, just to distinguish it in that way. So coming back around to your, your question, Steve, about um, do we see this as problematic um, because of some of the influences that were had on it in there, especially early on in its development. Um, it seems like at different points, there were Christian, Islamic, Buddhist, uh, Jewish influences on the Enneagram in its development. But again, as we know it today, you don't necessarily like need those ties or need to know about those influences to use how it is today. So I think it's good to know some of that context. I feel like the Enneagram is a tool that's easy enough to kind of separate from that mm-hmm. and kind of use in a Christian understanding. Um, so I, I respect when folks like look into it and say like, I'm not really comfortable with it yeah. because of some of its history and, and even the way it's used today um, in like more manipulative ways or in other like spiritual circles. 
yeah, I think it's a tool that we can we can use. Well, I think even if it could be definitively traced back to say you know pagan roots or something, uh, I have been um, reading, uh, trying to think about the use of extra biblical sources, primarily because of all the conversations about CRT and everything that's going on right now, yeah. and um, came across this Calvin quote uh, where he's commenting from Titus one, um, and he you know uh, Paul quotes from one of their philosophers or something. And, and Calvin's basically like people who refuse to engage or refuse to draw from pagan sources are superstitious. <laughs> and he goes on to talk about how like, like, look, all truth is God's truth, basically. And um, uh, so we have to be discerning. We have to be wise. But if it's true, it's true. And then he quotes from uh, St. Basil in the fourth century, who also has this really interesting outworking of like using Greek literature and how to use it wisely. So I, I think with the Enneagram, it's one of those things where it has, has it been abused? Yes. Could it be traced back to uh, shady sources? Maybe. But the reason it's so popular is because it resonates with, with some, with reality to some degree. And so it, it can be, I think, with discernment and with wisdom benefited from by Christians. Um, not, of course, if it's going to damage their conscience or do something that's going to, you know, harm them. But um, for those who, who resonate with it are kind of on the fence and wondering like, is that okay? You know, I think, I think there's certainly uh reason to, to be able to dip into that. Well, yeah, I mean, it, this is distinct from understanding it. Getting that framework is really helpful pressing because this is distinct from, you know, like adopting syncretism or, or trying to like say like, oh, well, I believe this, but I also want to dabble here. And I think that's probably like the fear that some would have on some legitimate level is to be like, um, spiritually, I don't want to dabble in these things and consider things all equal value. All truth is based, you know, or my, my faith essentially becomes a coexist bumper sticker, you know? So I could, you know, I, I, I get that. But I think, again, I like that, that tool understanding. And if you can't get past those origins, like that's okay to wear things loosely. Like that, that's really important. I will say that like, uh, it feels like salvaging is in, in ever, in, uh, like a pretty consistent Christian practice at this point is like, at some point we have to wrestle with where something is going or we have to wrestle with something that we've adopted and assumed as great. Um, and then all of a sudden more truth about its origins or its history comes out and we have to reevaluate, you know, because we see that with individuals all the time, you know, as we talked about, I think in season one a bit uh, is sometimes you're like, oh man, like I assumed this was the case or I held this to be so sacred and true. And then realizing that, oh, it's a good thing that that was not on the level of, of God's inspired word. It's a good thing um, that this was not made into God itself because this has flaws. So looking into to salvage where things can be, I think, uh, can, again, be helpful in helping us understand one another. And yeah, uh, I feel good about it from that. Route. Absolutely. I've, I've been thinking a lot about this recently because of some stuff I'm working on and the idea of sufficiency, the doctrine of sufficiency yeah. as um, scripture is like the buck stops there, right? We test all things by the final revelation of God. Um, but there's like, but truth is also out there. And so it's that constant process of engaging, salvaging, testing, rejecting stuff that we might like, but ultimately contradicts with scripture. It's a, it's a dynamic process um, of engaging and interacting with the world around us, with the ideas of the world around us. Every body of ideas has a history and you know none of it, except for the scriptures, as we would hold, is going to come out unscathed. Um, so anyway, yeah. 
I do, I do have uh, something that's kind of nagged at me before. Um, and is this cross-cultural? Like, is the Enneagram just sort of a Western European thing? Is it an American thing? Or is it, is it, is it transcultural? Can you, you know, go and talk through this in any context? Have you looked at it at all, Steve? No, I haven't, but I, I do, I think it has, I would think the Enneagram has one thing going for it in that I think the, the balance of individual and collective is something that it, it, it kind of holds well, whether that's by design or whether that, maybe that is for, you know, different Eastern influences as well and different, different paths and different origins it's had. But ultimately, if I, if I say that I am a three on the Enneagram, right, and and I tend to to do these things or or I need to I look at things through this kind of lens. Um, it is in some way connected, you know, irrevocably to the other types, other people that I'm communicating with, right? So I think about that very, very like tangibly now when I am um when I'm mentoring um amazing students and they are they are responding very very much like how I would respond to challenge and support. Um, and then I, I resonate with them and I'm like, okay, there's a reason why there's that resonance there. And then other times when I'm like, there is no resonance here and this is an uphill climb and we're working through this together. It's, it's, uh, it has, it has, you know, my, my patience, um, is at work and I feel like it's never just me out on an Island. You know, it is still trying to understand the perspective, uh, the influence that has brought this other person to this point. So, because when we think about the U S being so individualistic, the West being so individualistic, um, and then other parts of the world, like having that collectivism, which even though I growing up in the U.S., I like I really lean towards that collectivist kind of mindset in a, in a lot of ways, you know. Um, and so I think that balance, I, I've felt that and I think which is one of the reasons why I've like resonated with it in, in the past in my own development or the development of my teams has been just because it kind of has both of those components to it. You don't get to just be like, well, I've decided that you can have your other eight types. I am this type. And uh, so it doesn't have anything to do. It's like, well, every, it sounds like every, every day is connected. If you're a number, you're like part of a triad or you're part of a, basically yeah. part of a musical group. You know, everybody's like something different. It's all the same, right? <laughs> so you're part of all these, you have all these different um, connections that you have to have with, with other people. And I, I think that makes it a little bit, a little bit more transcendent. Hmm. That's a good point. <laughs> Don't use that word around me. Uh, you, you know, it's my number one word. It's my favorite word. It has been since you met me. And I work it in at least three times in every conversation. Some would call it a very transcendent term. Go ahead. Um, yeah, yeah I, I will say like a three in the U.S. might look really different than a three. Like, because of socialization and cultural yeah. norms and all of that. Sure. Because again, it's more about motivation than behavior. And I like what you said, you said Steve, about um, Enneagram encouraging nuance. Um, and often in, in the US, things are put into dichotomies of like extrovert, introvert, or like thinker, feeler. And Enneagram is full of like triads and groups of three and patterns of three throughout the whole thing. Um, so that I think opens things up for it to be like really flexible um, cross culturally as well. Yeah. So I'm hearing you're saying three is the most important number. That's cool. Thanks for saying it's that. It's nine Appreciate because it. it's three times three. Yeah, but you can't get you know, the nine without three nine. multiple times. I'm so number I'm one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, you don't get to get off. Yeah, you don't, you don't have to get away with this. Uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, 
you talk, what was that process about? Oh man, I, well, it was, I read a book, um, that was okay. Uh, and <laughs> what a review, <laughs> I read a book that was, uh, okay, but it, you know, it had the whole description of each one. And as I worked through it all, it was, uh, trying to figure out which one I, I, I was, I, I was, uh, best suited for and, um, finally landed on, on one, uh, which I think is kind of your, uh, I don't know what the shorthand term is for that, but it's, I don't know, it's called the perfectionist or the reformer. Right. So, yeah. So always concerned about what's right and, and what the right thing to do is. And so that was kind of illuminating because, um, I think my parents got told in kindergarten, like your son's a very black and white, you know, like he doesn't have any gray and uh, it's true. I've always just been, what's the rule? What needs to happen? What's right. Always had a strong bent towards like pursuing what's just um, always want to know where the line is. And so um, that's certainly been part of my personality. And, uh, and uh, so being able to own that and, and see the benefit of that, but also the pitfalls and how that's actually played into, um, I, I deal with uh, anxiety and I've got OCD. So it kind of makes a fun combo for a one uh, because of the, the inner critic and um, the kind of obsessive nature, but it's helped me to own that and uh to be able to move forward more productively like you talked about to, to kind of move out of that box in and uh to a healthier healthier place all right so i'm assuming that some of our listeners have been tracking with us so far but this is new to them uh perhaps and um maybe they're interested so where is a good starting place if uh I want to figure out my number or learn more about the Enneagram. Uh, where do I go? What book do I read? Is there an article I can look at? What, where do I start? Yeah, I would say books are great. Uh, the book that I would, I usually recommend to the beginners is the road back to you by Suzanne Stabile and Ian Morgan Cron. Um, he's the guy who I, uh, quoted earlier. Um, anything that Suzanne Stabile touches is gold. She has a podcast called, uh, the Enneagram journey that I listen to. Um, she also has a, at least one other book, um, other podcasts. Um, there's one called Fathoms in Enneagram podcast. Um, and one of the guys on there, Drew Mosier wrote a book called the Enneagram of discernment that I really like. Um, Beatrice Chestnut has, I think a podcast, but she has a book that I've read called the complete Enneagram that I like, except I disagree with some things in there. Um, the way she draws her integration arrows. So those will be like some places to start. Um, also, Chris Christopher Hewitt's his book, The Sacred Enneagram. He's buddies with the Sleeping at Last guy. Oh, yeah. Um, who he did a song mm -hmm. the Enneagram type. As far as articles, the Enneagram Institute is good. The Narrative Enneagram is kind of like a school of Enneagram teachers that has good stuff to say. There are plenty of memes out there if you're a meme person, but don't just rely on memes. As we get ready to close up, I just want to mention um, uh, that I, I thank you for, thanks a lot for coming on, Preston. Uh, it has been, I've been working at Whedon for four years and three of those years we've been working together. And I would say that while, like I mentioned, when I initially came in, I probably was more skeptical to the Enneagram. And then there's been a few people who have known more about it, um, uh, or most people know more about it than I do. But I mean, there's been a few people specifically that I've worked with that we're passionate about learning more about it. And with you being, with you being one of them, certainly, um, I think like the way that you hold it 
the way that you learn about it, but I think have a healthy and good understanding of it, uh, a responsible, I guess, understanding of it is part of probably what helps make it tenable for me. I think like that's helpful in me getting into it. It was like, okay, so this can be done responsibly. This can be done well. Um, so in all seriousness, I, I do really appreciate you um, telling us a little bit more about it and definitely like your passion and wanting to understand it has informed my own. Um, so since this is like our first podcast episode together, but it's the last one we'll be working together. Um, just want to tell you straight up, congratulations. Can't wait to hear about the great things you're going to do as a residence director and um, at Messiah. And I'm really proud of you, man. You've really grown. And yeah, I mean, phew, you still have a, a long way to go. Don't get me wrong. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I knew this was too nice for like on the record. Like, this is a great <laughs> But no, I love you, man. I appreciate you coming on and, uh, and keep learning, keep growing and keep developing. Thank you, my good man. <laughs> this has been Tesseract. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, Bob told me to close out the show and he knows that I don't do that very often. So I'm going to try to remember this. Basically, we want you to join the conversation. So you can join us at Tesseract Podcast on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, shoot us an email or a message on any of those platforms if you'd like to talk to us about an episode, suggest an episode, or push back against all of the stuff that Preston just spewed on here. So give us your feedback. We can't wait to hear from you. Um, until next time, this has been Tesseract.